0: Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support.
1: All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision-making.
0: Welcome, everybody, to TNT episode 16, Teeth and Titanium. Oscar, how's it going? It's good. It's good. I feel like we're we're seeing you more often now in Toronto, now that you're, like, here, established here, I think. Oh, it's so nice to to be back and settled. I see you a lot more frequently. I see all my friends and family a lot more. It's just nice. Like we're, we go to family events that I missed for the past seven years. I was in Montreal. I yeah. was in Charlotte. And I even, even maybe years, longer, you got to you got to include dental school, right? You're not fully available when you're in dental school either. Like, don't down for that. sure not. The only difference was in dental school, you had nothing on the weekends. there was no call, yeah. right? Yeah. And true. London was only a two hour drive. So, yeah. it was, so if I had a family event, I would just prioritize that and say, oh, I'm going back that weekend. That's I would true. Just drive and carpool no, right. people. So it was so much easier. Whereas Montreal, it was it was a lot harder. You have call schedules, things like that. You got to study. And then fellowship, obviously, I was away for a year plus During the pandemic, so
1: So it's like it's the worst case scenario.
0: Yeah, so it's so nice now just being able to sell and be able to go to so many events that I wasn't able to. For those of you listening, you might be thinking, man, these guys are sounding crystal clear. They sound good, eh? They sound pretty good. What's going on? And that's because finally, we have our new audio equipment. We got some new microphones sent to us by the CAOMS. So thank you so much for that. Big shout out to them. Big shout out to the CAOMS and to Ellen Holzman, who helped to kind of figure out what is the best value? Obviously, we don't need a super fancy microphone, but just something that give us a little bit more podcast quality. And hopefully the listeners will listen and think and they'll that notice everything's it. a little, yeah, they'll notice it's more clear and easier. to. So thanks a lot for that. Oscar, last podcast, we mentioned milk and how you asked me what I, and I said, I use 1% milk. And you said for you, even that's too much, it's skim. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought I had to think of you. And what we do is for the listeners that don't realize, you know, we have a, have a note that's on each, each month's episode or, you yeah. know, teeth and titanium, we call it. Basically, anytime something comes to mind, I I go on there, you go on there, we just, we add a little quick reminder of a story or a note, because the truth is over the course of a month, like so many things happen. We're going to forget certain funny moments that we want to talk about. And I I wrote down 3.25% milk, because I wanted to tell you this. I'm at home. We ran out of milk, no milk.
1: Oh, you're saying home, like your home, you and Bianca, or you you went your parents home?
0: No, no, no. no. We're we're at my my apartment, um, Bianca my apartment uh, that we're renting, and uh, there's no milk. And I gotta have breakfast before I go to work. I got the cereal, I have no milk, so I opened the fridge. And you know, Lennox is 13 months now. So oh. you have to start introducing the milk, but it has to be fatty milk. So we had 3.25% just sitting there. You're disgusting. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> wanna know. I don't Listen, even wanna know. Is milk. It's gonna be a little creamy, I mean a little creamier. But let me try it. And I had Honey Nut Cheerios or, or like multi-grain Cheerios with this 3.25% milk. Oscar, it was the greatest bowl of cereal I've ever had. No. It was like pure cream you and had, milk. You had it butter. And cereal. <laughs> so uh, I thought I thought that you, you'd find that kind of sickening. That is that actually I amazing. I will admit it was uh, not a long-term solution. It was, it was more of a, of a one-time thing. That was like a one-time <laughs> treat. Okay, good. I'm done with this. Yeah, exactly. All right, Oscar, let's jump into some current events. So speaking of events that you know we're able to go to now, U of T had their al- alumni event on November 6th. We talked about how this was coming up you were you were making fun of me saying i was a promoter because i was bringing it up you were but i loved it though because you're promoting my program so i was all excited for that well this is the thing i found funny is like this is a uft alumni event and other people are invited but it's primarily a uft alumni event why am i the one promoting it? you should be the one promoting it yeah but you're now you got to realize you're a uft guy now too dude it's starting to hit me i even told bianca like i came home with the lanyard and it was a uft lanyard that's what i mean and I'm starting to have UFT gear. I'm, I, I'm you, slowly, I'm mentally realizing that like I'm part of UFT now. And, and
1: it's you know, weird, but it's kind of cool. You know what you'll have to realize too is that no matter what, okay, like I don't, you're never going to forget your training, but realistically, you're going to be longer a UFT guy than you ever were a McGill guy or a fellowship guy, right? Because this is the, hopefully the rest of your career. Yeah. Cause so, we did
0: say after six years, yeah. I want to spend more time at UFT than McGill. So and, we still got a long
1: way to go, but that's still short when you talk about a career.
0: Yeah. Very short. And it, it is a little weird to me to, to think of like myself as U of T or associated with U of T, but I, I gotta admit it, it's kind of growing. I mean, I kind of like it because yep. it's such a big program. It's such a big program, such a big name, so well known. Like it, it's kind of
1: nice. And, and like we said so many times before, sometimes you're a little bit isolated and you're in little bubbles, like when you're in McGill and other people, Manitoba or Dow or Western, or whatever, or me at U of T. But when you get to kind of meet the people and really get to meet the people, like you're getting to meet our staff now really well, you realize there are some really cool people here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's some awesome people here. Met a lot of them at the UFT alumni event. A lot of people from McGill,
1: Laval. Uh, U of UFT alumni came. It was it was a lot of fun. Shout out to like all the guys who put that together. Dr. Cameron, Dr. Everyone else. Julia who really, Pomporo yeah, was involved Julie, from McGill. She was amazing from McGill. Yeah, like everyone who put that together. I didn't realize how awesome of a time it was going to be. So I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you came too because we haven't been able to hang out together no. at conferences that much or academics. So it's kind of nice to see you in your element talking to all the alumni. Michael Markowitz was the guest presenter. And one funny thing that happened, at one point his talk was talking about fellowship. So he obviously talks about Brian Farrell's fellowship. He gave me a shout out saying, you know, I know Wendell did that popular fellowship. But then just like totally out of the blue, he's going through his education seminar and he's like, this is a great article that was published here in Toronto about what are the perception of OMFS among dentists, dental students, physicians. And I was laughing in my mind first because I was like, yeah, man, we actually reviewed this journal on our Journal Club episode on a previous Teeth and Titanium episode. But in my mind, I was thinking, Oscar you're sitting next to me he's saying this is by Mayo at all and I'm looking at you and he doesn't
1: realize the author's in the room uh, that was honestly a funny thing because like it was it was completely unexpected and I'm there and I'm like I look up I'm like, oh that's my article yeah, like you liked it you liked it oh hey you know what I may do more research <laughs> let's not go crazy let's not go crazy <laughs> no, yeah let's
0: not go crazy you're not no, no, you're not gonna do that yeah. but still it was it was nice to see yourself it was a little shameless plug to yourself yeah, it but was. it wasn't shameless because someone like, else did I, it. I wasn't even part of it yeah yeah so that was pretty cool Another funny thing that happened at the alumni event, this happened with Tony Shahadi, but in general, a lot of people, a lot of them say like, is that
1: the Oscar? Like from the podcast? And then they come up and they yeah, meet you. Yeah, because you're out everywhere. They... I've kind of behind the scenes. Everyone gets to meet you because you're at every event.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they come, they meet
1: you. People are taking pictures with us. It was, it was nice. It was pretty funny to it meet felt, some of the loyal listeners. And, and like another shout out is, is Tony Shahadi. He's an awesome, awesome person. He's really supported us a lot, but seeing him in person, he's just a very nice guy. Yeah.
0: So that was a lot of fun. He, he took a photo of us and said, can I get you guys autograph? It was, it was pretty funny. And then <laughs> who's the guy who took the picture? He
1: was, he was one of the ones who come me before too. He was
0: a resident. Yeah, that was Nasser. So he's one of the current residents and he's a huge fan of the podcast too. And he's like, Oh, Oscar, it's great to meet you. I feel like I know everything about me and you have yeah, no idea who so I am. Nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was so nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nassir's an awesome guy. So he, he listens to every episode. He's definitely smiling right now uh, <laughs> listening to this episode. Great guy. So really a successful event, really a lot, of, a lot of fun. Bianca came to the dinner event too, so she got to meet a lot of the staff that I talk about all the time, a lot of the residents. So that was a lot of fun. It's nice
1: that she showed up. I'm pissed that I couldn't make it. but it, like, I was actually hosting my mom's birthday that night. Yeah, you had, a, you had a legitimate reason. But even the fact like it would have been nice to be there and then even for Lexi and Bianca to hang out more because there's not many opportunities we're getting to do that right now. So it's, it, it was that would I did miss out on that. So I'm not happy about that.
0: Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about was had my first orthognathic case. As you know, I've been doing a lot assisting others, but this was my first one where I was a staff. I was guiding. And, and I that's had to make very decisions. different. Very different. So much easier to assist. You, you just do your side, There's and they no gotta pressure. guide you. There's no pressure. It's not your patient. You're never going to see this person again. Yeah. So a lot of pressure. My main thing was just like you know, take your time. Don't rush. Just try and avoid complications. It really helps to have an experienced person across you assisting. I was lucky to have Joey Friedlich because we we're doing this at the Brampton Hospital. So he's been doing orthodontic surgery for a long time. So it's different. When you have an experienced person across you're from you. You're not worried you, as much. Um, you're not worried as much. You can trust to, them. You know that they're going to do that side well. And well, and credit to him. You, I didn't tell you this. You're not going to believe this. He said to me, for the mandible, do you want to do both sides? Like, I'm not going to get offended. I'm just here to assist you. Like, you know what you want to do. That's pretty classy. Yeah. He's like, I know you did a fellowship and I know you do it. So I was like, listen, I'm going to do my side. But when it comes to your side. No, you're doing it. Like it's your patient. Your, yeah. Yeah. It's you, you're doing your half. You're doing your side. I, I want to see it and, and you're going to be comfortable doing it. And it went so smoothly. So he showed him for helping me and okay, the case went well and the patient's doing okay now. So that was stressful, but nice to get the first one out of the way. And uh, what about you, Oscar? What about private practice? I mean, we haven't checked in with you in a while. How, how's private practice going? I know you're developing a little bit more of a routine. Um, yeah. We had said previously on our goals, remember news resolutions, you want to maybe try and Integrate maybe some more implant cases or maybe some more complex cases. Never stop
1: learning is one of the things you said. So, how's how's your life going? How's private practice? And it's funny. So, I think just like with everything, the more you do it, the more it becomes routine. And I don't mean routine in a bad way. I'm using routine as a good thing here. When you first go to private practice, it's a little bit stressful. It's a little bit overwhelming. You're used to a residency. And then the first year, you're kind of figuring yourself out. And now I feel like I'm getting into routine. And I'm really enjoying it. You go to work, you kind of know how things work. You know what private practice work, but where I'm also getting to be in the OR two to three times a month with the partners on my practice, still getting to do a ton. And it's showing me that I do like private practice. I really enjoy it. I'm, I'm not, I, I think there's value. In I, and I really, really think that we need people like you who want to be in academics or at least part-time in academics. Probably not for me, but it has shown me over the course of the last two years is that I do like being in the OR. I really enjoy going to the ORs with, with, with Eddie and with Chris Lee and with Peter and Amir, we get to do a ton of stuff. We get to do a lot of orthognathic and it's fun. And it's probably the most fun day of the month or the week whenever we go because clinic can get routine and it can get redundant. Yeah, you told me if anything, you would want to go to the OR more, you said. You yeah. like you really like it. Uh, definitely, definitely enjoy that. But also by that note, private practice is, is great. I'm very happy with it. It's just because things are becoming more second nature, but they're becoming more normal. That's awesome. Yeah, you
0: need to develop the routine. You get used to the assistance, the flow how to speak to patients, what yeah. to say, how to and, do the surgeries and, to get you're, you're going
1: to see that. Your OR things, you did a fellowship, you're not going to have any issues with that. The big thing for you is going to be the private practice part being like, especially once you end up owning your own thing, you're like, this is on you. How am I going to build this? How am I going to keep getting bigger? How am I going to keep growing? How am I going to keep expanding? For sure. Yeah. And as you said, you know, for example, I have my first
0: implant case coming up in December and it's just, it's just a single implant, but it's, it's, not, probably, it's not a big it, deal. It's
1: more nervous than you'll be for your first orthognathic case.
0: Yeah, yeah because man they're paying money they're paying uh-huh. you they're expected it's, it's stressful the yeah. referral the dentist you want to make them happy so yeah definitely definitely stressful so nice nice and uh nice to know that things are going well and i was always, always good to hear an update on your prior practice side and one thing i'll give you credit for is you, you you're upfront and honest like you you don't want to teach you don't want to do academics you don't want to take call but you recognize that you recognize what you like doing what you don't like doing so because the worst thing in the world would be you force yourself to take call and then you're saying, oh, uh, hey, Oscar, we have a mandible fraction. You're going to say, ah, just take care of it. I don't want to come in. I'm not available. You know you know what I mean? You, you're and like one of those.
1: So it's you know. funny you say that. That would be the one thing that might have changed over the last six months or the last maybe three months is that academics, it, it's not for me. I Like I said, I give you credit. I give everyone credit who does it. It's not for me. But call isn't necessarily that. Like my mindset on call has changed.
0: Ooh, opening yeah. the door a little bit. Yeah, now, is yeah. that because... Is that because you saw that uh, bilateral subcondylar
1: parasymposal fracture I did with the residents? and you that, saw you were like, I don't love giving you compliments, but that was a nice fracture. You guys did a nice <laughs> job. And honestly, the residents were very happy to work with you. They yeah, The residents it. did everything. So I can't take credit for the case. They did it. They had a great time. Shout out to Justin and Chris Bernard for that case. But no, honestly, it was before that. It was realizing there are certain things I miss. And it may be the fact that I am going to the OR a lot more with my prior practice that it's saying, you know what? I like this setting. And maybe it is time to go back into taking some call because, yeah, if I'm out out of call for too much longer, yeah, you I'm lose never going to want to do it.
0: Yeah, 100%. And listen, shameless plug of Sinai, we're we always looking for more people
1: to take call. <laughs> I said I want to take call. I didn't say where I wanted to take call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Just, just trying to do ridius solid Brian yeah. Rittenberg and be like, hey, maybe you can try and recruit Oscar and yeah. bring him along with the team. We'd love to have you. That's great. So another update I wanted to give was, you'll remember... We got some fan mail from Derek DeClue, who's a dental anesthesiologist at Sinai and in private practice about the ODSA meeting that was happening. And he had said to us, are either of you interested in giving a lecture? And I said, okay, I talked to you and you you said you were busy that weekend or something. So why don't you take it? So I did it and I gave a lecture on airway.
1: I wish I listened to
0: it. I know, I remember you were busy. I wish I, I, wish I could have recorded it for you or something like that. I, I thought it went well. I got some good feedback after, but the hilarious thing was, I remember you saying like, oh, it's going to occupy your time. It's on a weekend. But it turns out, a nurse that works with me works at another office and the dentist there loves anesthesia and was listening to the ODSA, you know, meeting. And she was like, yeah, I work with that oral surgeon. He's like, oh, it was a great talk. So he gave me some positive feedback and hopefully it could be like a referral, for example. There you go. Yeah. Small world. You never know like who's listening and, and what can happen. Yep. Yeah. So that was a fun event. One of our mutual friends, Sal, also spoke at the event and and he he, he was really entertaining as well. And, and I, know, I know you're good buddies with him. Oh, he's such a beauty. Yeah. So uh, next up, we wanted to go into our fan mail. First fan mail is from someone that we're gonna be talking about a lot on this episode, and that's Mark Hamill. They're, they're getting—he's getting a lot of airtime
1: for not being on the on the podcast.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and we talk about it in our interview later on. But you know, he's dying to get on the show. He'll never admit, but he's dying to get on. He's mad that he hasn't been on. And
1: honestly, we want to have him on. We want to have he, him. He on.
0: fits and all our like prerequisites. We're going to have him on. It's a hundred percent. But I made my criteria today quite clear, and, and I told you about it. Was that you know. When I'm operating, not in the teaching facility of Sinai, maybe I'm doing a, an orthopedic case or a trauma case somewhere else, and the residents are not busy; they're not assigned to his OR or like Sitko OR, OR Carl Cuddy OR. You know, they're, they're just chilling. Maybe they want to come assist me. Maybe the fellow wants to come operate with me, do some jaw surgery. And you know, Marco told me he told me he was honest. He said, "Listen, Wendell, you haven't earned fellow privileges yet. To, you know, have these people come?" Here. I said, "Listen, I've been here for like a month, so you, yeah, you don't have to tell me that." You can't argue that. I can't argue at all. He's 100 correct. But I'm thinking. This is the only leverage I have. I have no leverage over Marco. And, and I, so I his, got nothing offer. And so
1: his response was, "I'll start my own podcast." Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, that's the last thing. That's the last thing we need because we both know you're gonna jump. You're gonna yeah, jump yeah, ship. Yeah, like. I, I I got ties, man. And and again, he's the founding, one of the founding partners of my private practice. So you know what? (laughs) I got to cut you you loose. You would jump ship so quickly. Not even, like not even a question.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: So no, obviously we want to have Marco on. He's he's been on our list from the beginning of people we want to have on. We just, you know, it's got to be the right time. And then it's the only leverage I have over him. So uh, the longer I keep this going, the better he wants to treat me, the nicer he wants to be to me. The more no, R days you, more days you <laughs> yeah. might get, yeah. Give me more O R days, more cases. Yeah. yeah, But he sent some nice family. He said, nice podcast boys. Just listen to you two clowns. Very entertaining and lots of fun. Kudos, great work. Regards, Marco. And thanks for the shout out. So he's, it's all in good fun. Yeah, yeah he, he likes listening. Brian Ritterberg also had sent us a fan text message. He said, you know, great episode. Love listening to you guys. And you guys have a great chemistry. So he's someone else that we want to have on. The, the difficulty is, if, for example, me being at McGill, you know, there's so many people at McGill you'd want, I'd want to talk to. It took me, you know, a year and a half to get Nick on, who's going to be on later on the podcast, and he's someone that I'm super close with. And there's other people at McGill that I want to have on. You have UFT. There's people you're dying to have on. Now yeah.
1: I'm at UFT. I've met so the, like, your you, staff that you've talked about. Exactly. Now you're going to start building these relationships where it's like, we can't just flood it with all UFT guys. Exactly. We can't have
0: UFT, UFT, McGill, UFT, McGill, UFT, yeah. McGill. Yeah. We have to try and spread out, but that means people end up waiting, especially because guests are only every other episode. So, we feel terrible, but these are people we definitely want to have on. And we really appreciate that to listen. And it's something that's going to happen. So definitely, definitely shout out to both of them. And please be patient with us. Oscar is going to use us to negotiate his next contract at Crescent, I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And I'll, it's and like, I'll negotiate at Surge Ortho. Like, it's like, so who wants to be on first? Right or Burger <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. All right. Oscar, one thing you did bring up at the U of T alumni event was the concept of an exchange program for residents. So you, as a resident at U of T, you go spend one month at McGill to see head and neck oncology and free flap surgery, which you're gonna get no exposure to unless maybe sometimes an off service. And maybe someone from McGill will come to U of T and try and do as much arthroscopy, which we wouldn't do any of try and maximize you know, TMJ stuff with Sitka, for example. What inspired you to think of this idea and how do you think it would work and why do you think it would be successful?
1: honestly i had thought of it numerous times and it would have been more just when we were talking like before me and you when we were didn't have this podcast kind of when we just when you would send me texts about a case or i would send you texts about a case when we were residency same thing i'll give a shout out to victor same thing when he would talk about the trauma experience in manitoba that most canadian programs know they got a crazy trauma experience right and so it just had me thinking i'm like we all know the strengths of our programs we all think they're very good and they all individually are very good, but there are things that some do better than others. There just is right. Like we don't do any on, on service head and neck oncology. We just don't do it when we're off service with the NT shirt. Sure, but being the primary physicians, we're not, you guys do, we do a ton of TMJ prime more than anyone else in the country. And we do it quite well. And then in Manitoba, again, the trauma experience. So that had me thinking, I'm like, yeah, if we, work together and could share residents because it's not like we're really big programs so if we give one and you give one like that's fine it's not we're trying to give 10 residents to each other where you're filling up the spaces and there's no room if you're each sending one resident i spend a month in mcgill get a great experience get a different perspective on treatment i think it's great and if you especially if you're doing it more in your later years like your senior or chief years that's really where i thought it would work yeah exactly and
0: Especially if you did a like for like trade. So the month you come to McGill, yes, someone goes exactly. uh, to Toronto. Yeah. It's the same amount of people on service. You're It'd not diluting great. it or you're not flooding a service. Yeah, exactly. But obviously you have to figure out the licensure requirements, but you can get like a temporary resident permit or something like that, figure something out. But I think that's a great idea. It'd be really good. And the ironic thing is you brought up this idea at the alumni event. And then I overheard Marco and, and, and Mike Markowitz talking because he's a Buffalo, which is so close to Toronto. And he was like, man, we should set something up where your residents come up and see our TMJ and work those stuff. And they go down to see all the cleft cranial facial stuff he's doing because that's like wild that oh. none of us really get to see any of that they must have heard our conversation i, I thought of that <laughs> I, it was weird the timing was a little weird you know, that I mean, we and we were sitting behind them too so i don't know if they heard us talking yeah it was too perfect too much of an overlap i thought but hmm, who knows maybe maybe they were inspired by by your idea which i think is a great idea so next up we, we're going to go into our guest segment of the podcast and, and we're happy to have Dr. Nicholas McCool from McGill. As I mentioned before, you know, he was my staff for six years. He was pretty much the reason I went to McGill when I was interviewing. I met him and I had known him because I did an externship at Michigan for three weeks and he was the fellow at the time. And you know how someone is, you know, based on how they treat their inferiors, right? And I was here as a second year dental student, as an extern, he was the fellow. Walked me around clinic, introduced me to the patients, taught me what he was doing. We did like a gunshot wound case together. He's explained to me this massive surgery. He uh, took me to lunch, like just super, super nice guy. And he was Canadian. So I was like, this is awesome. And then at the time, Michigan no longer accepted Canadians. So I couldn't apply there. But then when I went to interview McGill, he was the program income program director. So I was like, whoa, I could train under this guy. I love this guy. He was super nice. It was one of the huge reasons why I wanted to go to McGill. And this is this is a really special episode to me. I think also you could tell when we we're doing the interview with him. that Like this meant a lot to me, like having him on the show and talking to him. like I could talk to him for hours catch up and just joke around with him. It's
1: funny because it's the first time I've really interacted with him, but I felt like I knew him just because our conversation, just like you probably before you really met Dr. Caminiti, you kind of thought you knew him because I talk about him so much as well. Right. So it was nice to see and hear how you guys interact. It was, it was actually really nice.
0: Yeah. So I I was super, super pumped for this interview. We wanted to bring him on. I mean, we could there were so many topics to talk to him about. And I was thinking like, how do we pick one topic? What's the most valuable? Yeah, and I think one of the most valuable, one unique things he can give is talking about academics and also residents and residency programs. You know, he's been our uh, previous program director. He's the current chief of the department, so I saw him in both of those roles. He did a fellowship. He does head and neck oncology, so there was so much to talk to him about. And I'm just really, really happy we finally got him on and, and got to talk to him. One thing you're gonna see in the episode, Oscar, is he he makes fun of me a lot, and he jokes about me a lot.
1: That's why, honestly, I'm gonna love him already. You're gonna love him already, but I
0: will say that it's important for the listeners to realize that Nick is like my boy in the sense that I could, I, I would hang out with him outside of residency. Like we would play poker together. We would watch Super Bowl together. We would talk about TV shows. Even now we text all the time. He's someone I look to for like as a mentor for advice, but it's important to know that for six years, he ripped on me nonstop. I like, again, I already love him just for that. <laughs> He's <laughs> and doing it was, my job for me, but better. Yeah, and it was always hilarious because he poked fun at me in, like, smart, clever ways that I couldn't argue back. Where you're like, they were shit, true. that was, I was like, good. I was like, that was good. I was like, yeah. touche. Like, yeah. Well played, well played. Yeah. You're like, I'll be um, back. So, yeah,
2: yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> so you'll see some of that in this interview, just him ripping on me. And just just know that that's genuine. And he, he did it for six years. And I guess I thought maybe I would graduate, do a fellowship, be a colleague, but not no. apparently. apparently that's not the way it works. So without further ado, let's jump into our interview with Dr. Nicholas McCool. Joining us now on the podcast, long overdue, please welcome Dr. Nicholas McCool. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's great to finally be on here. I can't believe I, f- I finally got the call. I was <laughs> extraordinarily humbled.
1: Other people are still <laughs> waiting. Uh, <that's, laughs>
2: I hear, I hear. So look, yeah, my name is uh, Nicholas McCool. I'm a oral maxillofacial surgeon in Montreal. Uh, I am also an associate professor of OMFS and associate dean of postgraduate dental education at McGill. And also the chief of the Department of Dentistry and Oral Maxillofacial Surgery at the uh, MUHC here in Montreal. Uh, So yeah, I'm originally from Calgary, Alberta, and uh, live out here now, been here for the past eight years. And
0: where did you train?
2: I trained at the University of Michigan um, in Ann Arbor. I did my OMFS there and medical school there in my six-year program, and I also stuck around and did a uh, head and neck oncology and microvascular reconstruction fellowship there as well.
0: Nice, very nice. So one of the things right off the bat is people will notice, you know, we introduced you to Dr. McCool, but then I immediately switched and started calling you Nick. So I call you Nick now. You told me, you know, call me Nick. You
2: graduate, call me Nick. I really don't remember that uh, conversation.
1: (laughs) Wendell makes these things up (laughs) up, for for
2: sure. They're all in his head. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Call me Nick. It's like that never happened. Uh,
2: I think I think when he graduated, that's the first dream that he had is, oh, I think I can call him Nick now. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar, you can call me Nick. No problem.
0: Okay, perfect. Thank you. Well, that's why, that's why I brought this up. I was like, do you think Oscar will ever get the courage to call his
1: colleagues by their first name? And so, colleagues is different though. Like, I don't think you should use the word colleagues there. You're my colleague, Wendell. To me, <laughs> Doctor McCool. To you, it should always be Doctor McCool. No, no you, you can
2: call me Nick. Anyone can call, call me Nick. That's great. No, I'm I'm really happy to be on. Thanks, guys.
0: Yeah, no, we're we're really really happy you came on. The other thing I wanted to bring up before we start is I'm surprised that you have enough power, you know, to in your house to power your laptop to do this interview. I I figured you'd be using all the juice to power your uh, Audi e-tron.
2: Oh, right off the bat, eh? Yeah, <laughs> right off the shots bat. fired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I- well, let's jump into it. We, we, we've called you out. I've called you a sellout because, you know, you had the Acura. You told me buy an Acura, buy an Acura. And then I guess your lease came up and now you're in an Audi e-tron. So at what point did you decide that money and prestige was more important than your values?
1: The so, minute you left.
2: Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. I've been driving an Acura since probably 2000 and I want to say 2005, 2006. And as soon as you graduated and I heard you were going to buy an Acura, I immediately switched to Audis.
1: He's like, I can't, I can't, I can't stick with this.
2: I, can. I can't. First, he's going to call me by my first name yeah. and then he wants to drive the same car as me. I'm out.
0: He's going to think we're on the same level. It's not. A- oh, just a kind reminder to you, Nick, that, you know, all of Canada's is listening. So if you could not bash me the entire episode.
2: <laughs> that is going to be hard.
0: So yeah, so we have a lot of different things to talk about with you and we, we, we want this interview to flow. If it takes a long time, it takes a long time because we just have so much to chat about with. You you and we we really enjoyed talking to you but we tried to narrow it down to speaking about the academic side of OMFS and running a residency program or department you have you have turned down working in private practice several times in the past to focus on academics which does involve a significant income loss so What inspired you to do this?
2: I mean, I guess, look, for me, there are many things, primarily. So I finished fellowship in Michigan, and I I mentioned I'm from Calgary, Alberta, and I got an awesome job working with a close friend of mine and excellent colleague, Miller Smith, in the same office in Calgary. I moved my family back there, and I started working. And uh, obviously, there's no dental school there. There's no oral surgery program there. And things are a little bit different, you know, so I came from doing two, three huge cases a week, tons of trauma, gunshot wounds, all this sort of stuff and just high adrenaline all the time. And I spent most of my time in uh, private practice, although I was doing trauma and I was working with Miller and Simon Touchon there and we were doing some cool stuff in the OR. But it was different, right? So for me, I, I, it was it was too quick of a wean, I guess, from what I was doing. And and I have to tell you, I mean, I love our specialty. I love oral surgery and I love maxillofacial surgery. And the reason why I love it is the scope of practice that we have and the variety that we can do. And I think it was just a bit too quick for me to whittle down my variety. And I put in a lot of training or a lot of hours into my training to not be able to do what, I was trained to do, you know, and obviously there's politics that came into play and you don't have the backing of a university and have the backing of a a big hospital department. And so, you know, head and neck cancer was a pipe dream for me at that time, let alone microvascular reconstruction. And as you know, Wendy, that's uh, one of my biggest passions. So it was, it was a bit hard for me And and it was one of the hardest decisions I had to make, right? So I left my hometown, I left my family, I left my friends and I picked up and I moved to Quebec, which is, you know, uh, a lot different than Alberta, a lot, lot a different, different country. <laughs> Some people say that. Yeah. No, 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 that's not a different country yet, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but, but yeah, so, so that's it, you know, and I started the career that I started here back in 2013 at McGill and pressed forward ever so, since. Nick, I got question
1: for you to kind of follow along those lines is when you joined Miller and Calgary, were you joining thinking it was going to be different than what you ended up joining? Or were you under the impression that, yeah, you're going to be joining more a private practice setting and you were just surprised at how that affected you or how different it was? Or did you think you were joining a place where you're going to be doing more expanded scope than you really were able to do once you got there?
2: Probably like most residents or fellows when they graduate, you feel like you'll be able to get a lot more done than you. And so I can tell you, I went there and I pushed really hard to do full trauma, not just mandible fractures or mandible fractures on hep C and HIV patients, you know? So I went and I busted my butt trying to make sure that I got you know, orbits and ZMC's and stuff. And I found myself sleeping in my car when I was on call in the hospital parking lot at like three or four in the morning in the middle of a a nice Alberta winter. Oh,
0: And at that, at that time you were in an Acura, not a... And at that
2: time I was in an Acura. No heated seats. (laughs) (laughs) And that was like uh, six, eight months in. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't really do this. So... I had to make up my mind and it was either find uh, a uh, a warm body like Wendell to take call for me in an academic environment, right? So I can operate on these cases or I would let some of that go. Not, of course, not let all of it go because again, Miller and those guys are still doing a bunch of trauma and mm-hmm. uh, other things, but you can't compare to an, you, an what you do in an academic it, setting. For sure. Those sorts of things obviously come into play when you're when you're deciding if you're going to do an academic post versus more of a private practice post.
0: Yeah, awesome. So you kind of mentioned 2013. You went to McGill. So before we get into what happened after you got there, what kind of recruitment was there for you to come to McGill, and how did you end up in Montreal at McGill?
2: So the recruitment went like this. I called my close friend and buddy Michelle Al Hakim. And I said to him, Michelle, I'm so happy you're doing head and neck cancer in Montreal. I'm not doing as much here or any, I was doing a little bit, but not not as much as I wanted to in Calgary. I think I'm going to move back to the States. What do you think? He said, don't move anywhere. Let me call you back. So he went and spun some wheels and he decided uh, to bring me on and take over the position of program director at McGill because he was program director at the time. And then, yeah, he said, listen, I got a gig for you here. You don't have to move back to the US. Why don't you come and uh, work with me at McGill? I need your help. And the program's growing. And he just instituted the six-year program there. And the things were were on a tear. And he said, I need your help. And that's it. That's, and that's from how I that
1: got first there. conversation to when you moved, how long are we talking about here?
2: I think we had discussed it in December or so. And then I had three or four months to learn French and pass <laughs> my French exam, <laughs> or else I wouldn't be able to work. And then I moved to McGill, I think at the end of June, uh, wow. early July. Yeah. So it was like that's a quick change. Yeah. To six Pretty months. Quick. Yeah.
0: Wow. So then you mentioned that, you know, Dr. Elachima McGill, he was instrumental in building and designing the new six-year MDOMFS program. Before it was only four year, now it has both a four-year track and a six-year track. And shortly after you arrived, you were the program director for a while before moving on to chair of the department. So one of the things I wanted you to talk about on the academic side is what goes on into that process of designing or running a program. And what are the things that residents or full-time faculty or part-time faculty that they don't see? Because residents are always, you know, myself included, are always gonna say, why can't we just do this? Why can't we just, why can't we cut more? Why can't we just buy this thing? Why can't we make this change? Like what goes on? I know there's a lot, but kind of break it down for us. What goes on behind the scenes that we don't realize?
2: Well, I mean, gosh, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. You know, first and foremost, like, As you know, Dr. Shesson now is a program director, so she deals with a lot of these things. But, you know, the first and foremost thing that we have to do as academic OMFS is make sure you graduate from an accredited. Accreditation is key. And accreditation means that there are things in place uh, to document your education. There's rounds, there's uh, records of rounds, there's meetings, and there's minutes from meetings. There's reviews that go on that uh, the academic staff have to have about when those progress and why he still can't take out a wisdom tooth, you know, in his...
0: Well, once again, just a reminder, all of Canada's <laughs> listening, just, just, a, just a friendly reminder, but please, please, please continue. Please continue to insult me on my own podcast that I invited you on to, please.
2: You're, you're very welcome. So those are the kind of things that, you know, go on behind the scenes that are very time consuming. They're very difficult, obviously. We want everyone to succeed and success is obviously you graduating, being a comfortable oral maxillofacial surgeon and whatever you want to do. McGill isn't in the business of producing head and neck surgeon, everyone that graduates. That's, you know, the contrary. What we want to do is give you enough exposure that when you graduate, you're the best surgeon that that you can be. And, uh, you know, I, I was always told when I was training, You want to train to a level that's much higher than you ever want to practice at because when the hits the fan one day, you're there and you're able to sort of deal with the off situations where you really need to be, you know, a little bit higher than your normal daily practice so that is really you know the the big things that a program director has to do i think you know on the level of a a department chief or somebody running a department you need to make sure that you're there and getting the operating room time for your division so that You can cut more, right? Clinic, clinic space. And also, you know, it's most important and this is something that residents take for granted. And now you, Wendell, being in private practice, know that if you want a successful private practice, you have to provide service to your referrals. And, you know, uh, the referrals we have are all of Montreal and greater Montreal and sometimes Quebec. And we have to offer the same high quality level of service while training you. Or else if we stop getting referrals, then we stop having a program. There's no patients
1: in clinic. Yeah. yeah that's right. That, that, that's, that's a very good point. Sometimes now that you're, as me being in private practice, you do realize the stress that an educator goes on is under because you're trying to teach and trying to make it fulfilling for a resident, but you're also trying to provide a good service to a patient and also not lose your referral because you have to provide a good service. How do you balance that? Like that to me, I find very difficult.
2: It's extraordinarily difficult. It's the most difficult thing you do as an academic clinician in in surgery. And I think this probably goes for all of surgery because, you know, at some point you have to train a resident, but you also have to watch out for your patient as, as you were alluding to. I mean, I guess... It's a feel thing, you know, and as you grow as a teacher, as a surgical educator, you sort of learn how to gauge your resident's ability. You also have to be there and available to deal with all of the complications and repercussions that that resident will have, and, and, you know, everyone will have a complication. I will. As someone who's been practicing for 40, 50 years will. The uh, only difference is with a resident, you have someone to yell at. It's hard to sort of <laughs> yell at <laughs> yell at yourself. <laughs> so, so yeah, for sure. It, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing. And being a surgical e- educator is uh, for sure not, not the easiest thing to do.
0: So, what advice would you give to, you know, for example, I'm a new staff, uh, even Oscar sometimes works with the residents when he's with his partners at Crescent in the OR. What advice would you give to someone when they're trying to figure out how to balance the needs and desires of a resident that wants to obviously do the entire case? And you, where it's your license on the line, it's your patient. I know this is something that the current program director, Dr. Shiasan, would have to deal with on a, on a daily basis as well. So what advice would you give?
2: Look, I think, you know, you have to balance what are needs and da- desires of a resident, right, with what a patient's needs and desires are, or what the department or the division or the program's needs and desires are. It's, again, it's very tricky. There are basics that I feel obliged to teach every resident. And the same goes for Dr. Chasson, everybody in our division that teaches and those are you know the basics of history and physical formulating a differential exam diagnostic abilities being able to when you're operating manage tissues hard and soft tissues being able to control and hemostasis and bleeding and you know these sorts of things are are the basics that we have to provide every resident that's passing through now It's very different than, say, I have, you know, my fifth-year resident who's fresh off of general surgery walking in uh, to a fibula case and wanting to jump under the microscope and start throwing stitches. That may be their desire, but that's not in the best interest of the case of the patient of anyone, right? Because you need to build up to that. I think that's sometimes Probably one of the most frustrating things about being a surgical educator is that residents don't think that way. Not all residents, of course, but so you're in it. And and I get it, you know, you got two years when you're in your fifth year and you got your fifth year and your sixth year and you got some rotations in between. And if you're Wendell, you got to take two months of vacation and go to every meeting under the sun. Was, was it only <laughs> yeah. two? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and present your, your MR read and CT read at every meeting possible, right?
0: Spread the word. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you got that 24 months or let's say 20 months that, that you want to learn as much surgery as possible from, you know, all of the, you know, the Marco Caminides the, the Geneviève Chassons, Michelle Hakims, all these guys out there. And, and it's hard, but you got to remember that learning isn't doing and failing. Learning is doing and achieving or doing and succeeding because then you get a positive feedback in your brain. So the more you can watch and learn and build up to those steps, the better off you will to, to formulate a good sort of understanding of what you're doing in the operating room or in the clinic or whatever it is. So yeah, anyways, that's uh, balancing needs and desires. Everything in life it, it is very difficult, right? It's the same thing for residency and surgery.
1: I will say it, it's funny to hear you and because I deal with Dr. Kennedy a lot because he was our program director and he had this great presentation when he first took over where he was presenting on, on how how residents think and how staff think. And it was how when a resident does something, whether it's good or bad, it's almost like they get blinded by the experience that they enjoyed it so much that they'll leave the or be like, that was a good day. And the staff will be like, are you crazy? Like in his head, it's like, that, that was a terrible day. That was a such a long day. We took so long, but the resident is so naive that he doesn't realize that that really took way too long or that that wasn't skilled or that that wasn't effortless. So it, it's hard when you're the staffer, you want to get positive reinforcement and say, yeah, yeah, we did great. But in your mind, you're like, we did great. But you really have to realize that that isn't great. That wasn't that well done.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and the hard part of surgery, Wendell will tell you it's not hard for me at all, but is to give criticism. And then that's... Yeah, you
0: have the opposite problem. You can never give a compliment.
2: I can never give a compliment, right. <laughs> Two compliments
0: in six years of residency I got.
2: Did you really you get a kid. second one?
0: Yeah, I got, I got one in the <laughs> first year and one in the sixth year. <laughs> He bookended it. Right? He bookended it. He bookended it. Yeah. He, he was smart. He got one at the beginning and one at the end.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's different. And both were
0: nothing to do with surgical skills, by the way. Just throw that out there.
2: Gu- guaranteed. <laughs> So it's it's hard giving that criticism, but it's important. Um, again, your time is limited, and you need to learn from everything, be it good or bad. And you know, the better you can take that as a resident and learn from those experiences, the better a surgeon you'll become. I guarantee it. That's very true. Yeah.
0: So so along those lines, all joking aside, I consider you a very good teacher and educator. You're one of the main reasons I even went to McGill when I interviewed in the first place, and. Although I consider that you know not everyone can do that as naturally. I'm a new staff. You have to balance the needs of the resident and what you want to do and you want to teach. And I try and think of the basics of teaching, which is you know try not to be stressed, trying to be available, try and explain things even if they're basic. You know, really just try and be a ground level teacher first before you become better. But is this a skill you learned? Just how to teach? Were you inspired by others and? How can others improve or obtain this skill? Because people don't realize that teaching is a skill and it's something you have to work on and improve. So, what advice would you give to other people that want to teach well?
2: You know, I think being a good teacher probably has to do a lot with learning who you're dealing with. Everyone's different, every resident is different. There aren't two of the same residents in the past uh, eight years at McGill that I've ever met. And you want to nurture that student's passions and everyone has a different passion. And when you nurture it and you give them the skills to do better in whatever they're passionate about, I find it's sort of this positive feedback cycle and residents just get better and better and better and better. You know, I had amazing, amazing teachers at Michigan. I had, you know, very different style of teaching from the three major uh, people that were teaching me. So uh, Yossi Hellman, Sean Edwards, and Brent Ward. You know, I had times where my staff would be on me 100% and watching every move I did or doing everything. And I was just assisting and watching and learning. And I had staff that would just let me go the whole time. And even if it was something that I wasn't probably hundred percent proficient at but I sweat through it and and they would make me sweat and they would watch me sweat and they would they would seriously just look at me and say what's your next move is sort of like a, a chess game and and I took from all of those guys and and it was great for me because I would spend time with a person who would just do everything in front of me. And then in the next OR or the next day, I'd be with a person who let me sweat through it. And and that sort of complemented the teaching quite a bit. And I found that that was an excellent experience. And so, you know, for me, I try to emulate that. I try to give residents the opportunity to learn as much as they can. You know, they get frustrated. They'll watch me, you know, do a case, start to finish. But I'm always watching what they're doing in the case. And to me, I feel that that really shows me how, first of all, how into it they are and how much they actually know about what's going on during surgery.
0: Actively assisting, do they know the next instruments? Or are they just kind of asleep?
2: Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, the best things, I think, you know, the best qualities for residents out there to have, you know, who are listening to this uh, podcast are really uh, preparedness, one, and uh, respect, as we spoke about, for, you know, the fact that you're treating people, you're you're treating people, you're treating moms, dads, uh, sons, daughters, you know, uh, grandmas and grandpas. Preparedness is exactly what you said, Wendell. You know, I feel when I was at the height of my training, and I felt the most confident, you know, near the end of my sixth year, when I operated with one of my staff, it was like an elegant dance, I knew the next move. That's it. You know, he, he'd put his hand out for the Bovi, and I knew I needed, let's say a debakey and there was no talking. There was music on in the background and it was, it was elegant. It was beautiful. And that's what I love. That's such a nice feeling. You know, that's what I love about surgery versus going in there and, you know, fighting to grab the 15 or fighting to grab the number nine and all of this when you didn't know that the step before we needed retraction a certain way so that we could see where we're making our cut, let's say for a BSSO. So, so those are the skills I find that once a resident gets those skills, and once you find that you're, you're dancing with the resident in the operating room and and it's fluid, your surgery with them. That's when I know, you know, I can almost just hand the case over to the resident and, and all I have to do is just watch.
1: But that must be nice. That must be a really nice feeling as an educator to get to see your resident get to that point where you can say, I know he's ready or she is ready now.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's the best. It's the best feeling uh, for sure. You know, I'm cutting an orthognathic case and I do my side and I'm just watching the other side and, and uh, it may not be the exact same way that I'm doing it, but, you know, I know that I, I know that they know. What the next steps are, and if there's any issues, I know that they know how to react.
1: And I think, and from my perspective, watching enough educators is—I think we're fortunate for anyone who goes into the educating field. For us as residents, to get that, um, because, like you said, not everyone can do it. And I think everyone does have different styles, but you can tell the ones that are a bit more comfortable, the ones that make it teaching also look effortless, right? Like they're watching you but it feels like they're not watching you, but you know that they are. You know that they—they they, every little step that you take, they're looking at it and they're observing it, but they don't make it feel like they're over your back watching you do it as well. So even teachers come on different levels, but I think it is impressive when you see a teacher just make it look so effortless.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, every resident out there has to remember that having, you know, trusting somebody like a resident to work on your patient is a big thing. And, and it takes time for a staff to be very comfortable. I mean, you know, when I first started as a staff at McGill, I was probably less comfortable with residents working on patients autonomously than I am now. And I can gauge a resident's experience much better just with experience of teaching. I've only been teaching for eight years, so it's not like I've been doing it forever, but it it is something that does come with time.
1: That's good to know. And so I got like a more like a two-part question is, in your opinion, what makes a good resident And the second question is, who is your favorite resident of all time and why is it Wendell?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the best, you know, qualities of a resident say preparedness, respect for people and patience. And why Wendell was my favorite resident is because he offered me high quality episodes of HBO series that I didn't have. (laughs) So he's
1: resourceful. (laughs) He's resourceful. He's resourceful. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) He finds a need and he fills it.
0: Yeah. Before, <laughs> before, before Crave, I was like putting Curb Your Enthusiasm on a USB and giving it to him every Monday or something like so that. So he's uh, a fixer. Uh, is what he's
2: doing. a fixer. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so one thing we wanted to ask you about is, do you agree with what we said on our previous episode about reference letters for resident applications? You're someone that has to do interviews. You actually do it not only for oral surgery, but you have to do it for GPRs. So you're, you're reading a ton of reference letters. So does the system of reference letters need to be changed? And what did you think of our suggestion of just like four categories, one to ten, you circle a number and overall one to ten, circle a number, and then maybe there's a little note section at the bottom, like cut out these, you know, long flowing paragraphs that say absolutely nothing. And it's just a copy paste job for, for everyone.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's some validity to that. And, you know, comments, I think some comments are very useful you know a big long page two pager uh, reference letter basically just gets skimmed over right you want to you want to get to the very end of it i like the quantitative part of rating students on different qualities and characteristics and i think you know a better system would be one that the pass system has and if you guys know the pass system in the us there's a whole bunch of criteria that you you've got to rate as, you know, somewhat agree or disagree or, or neutral did not observe, which is also very useful, right? And then at the end, you have a chance to add like 500 characters in a comments box, which sort of allows you to put your twist on it, especially if you know the person giving the, the, the comments.
1: So, Nick, you've told us what inspired you to go into academics, and I thought that was really informative. But for others that would like to pursue a career in this field, what are the steps involved? Like, how do they improve their chances of getting into a program, either part-time or on a full-time basis?
2: I mean, I think it's early if you're really interested in academics to start early to let your program director know or your your chair of your division know early, and they sort of get you involved in the scene, right? So meetings, research, publications, electives, send you to go rotate with other people in different parts of the country, and put the word out. You know, when I hear somebody wants to do uh, academia, and I'm talking to one of my colleagues in academics, and they're like, oh. I'm I wish I I had somebody to come join me, but wherever, I mean, that's your best way to sort of get into an academic field. It really shouldn't be something you keep secret. You should really put it out there and and start early. I mean, that's definitely what I did. And again, my mentors uh, sort of Gave me every opportunity to meet with lots of people in the U.S. and present and all these sorts of things, which really helped me out when it came time to when I, I came into my academic career, obviously.
1: That's good to know. That's but that's that's true. Sometimes you may kind of not want to share it, 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 but you're also doing yourself a disservice. You're not putting it out there that you want to be involved and people may not know that you want to be involved. That's very smart.
2: Yeah, yeah, no,
1: for sure.
0: So a lot of graduates, you know, they look at academics in Canada because, you know, they want to get a war time most of the time. And what they want to do is they want to maximize their OR time, but they want to take minimal call, minimal clinical requirements or teaching responsibilities. And they kind of not everyone, but some people just want to you know take things from an academic program and use residents to take their call and, and operate with them, but not really give back as much. So why is this a problem and what issues does it cause?
2: I'd have to say it's a huge problem. I think we need to remember as a specialty and particularly as a hospital specialty or as a hospital surgical specialty, we're we're a small group. Right, and as the old uh, saying goes, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. So if we don't have OMFSs that are in administration and sitting at these meetings, you have no say. If you don't have people doing trauma in hospitals and taking call and giving good service and sometimes better service than other departments can give, then you lose that footing in the hospital. I mean, it's, it's very important for us to remember our. Raison d'être, you know, is, is trauma. The birth of our specialty is trauma. And and I believe very strongly and passionately that I think that as oral surgeons, there's very few people that can do maxillofacial trauma the same way we do. And showing that and showcasing that in the hospital is incredibly important. And I mean, without teaching, there's no accreditation, there's no programs, and without programs and without the need to say, listen, I need my residents to cut X amount of cases, so therefore I need X amount of OR time, or I need X amount of clinic space to train so many residents, because those are the requirements for every program out there, then you lose that again that footing or that 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 setting in the hospital so all these things are incredibly incredibly important you it, it would be you know very nice to just sort of have your cake and eat it too and just show up and and just operate whenever you want in the hospital but in particularly in Canada I mean that's not not the case you can't do that and the second you aren't providing the administration or the university a reason for the existence of that program, it's very easily lost. There's so many other services ready to gobble up that OR time.
1: So, so Wendell, are you Wendell, rethinking you're what you're going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had to do the same thing
0: when I was wanting to join U of as part-time. I mean, there's a big negotiation process. They need to get a lot from you and then you want to get things. So you have to strike up a balance. And in the end, as, as Nick was saying, the ratio is high. You have to give a lot to get anything. So for me, particularly, I have to give you know four clinic days a month, something like every week. You have to do surge ortho clinic. You have to take call one in five, and then for to do all of that, you get access to the residents. You have to teach the residents, and you do get maybe one day a month. So it's it's not like people think, oh, if I'm if I'm there downtown every week, why can't I operate every week? Like there's not that much OR time to go around. So the ratio of how much time you have to give in just to get any OR days or work with the residents, it's it's a high ratio. And I think that's the way it has to be, because otherwise, if you're just if you're just putting in one clinic day a month, and you expect you know one hour a week or one hour every other week, it's the ratio is not high enough. You have to give way more than that, and that's what I realized when I was doing the interview
1: process. And it's unsustainable. If everyone thought that way, like like there would be like Dr. McQueen was saying there would be no program if everyone just gave that one day a week and said, okay, I can operate also every day a week. Well, it's Canada. There's not enough hours to go around, and and I'm busting your balls. This, this time, Wendell, because Dr. McCool's on and, he, and he's busting your balls too. But you, you do give a lot, and you like to teach, and you like to leave this the meeting. Soon. Yeah, exactly. But no, no, you, you do a lot with the school, and the residents really like operating with you. So it's you're doing a good job for sure. Yeah, I enjoy. It. I, I find it a
0: lot of fun, but it's definitely stressful. Nick, for you, obviously now you have private practice in, in your life. It's a big part of your life as well, starting building a clinic. But before you had the private practice side, and you were a full time academic practitioner only in the hospital, pretty much every day. What was your weekly schedule like and what is an ideal academic practice weekly schedule?
2: So, yeah, I mean, for the six years that I was full time, I was doing, I would say, one to two ORs a week, two to three clinics per week and zero to one days per week administration and research and meetings and all these other things. I can tell you that's that's quite a bit, you know, and again. I was coming from a unit in Michigan where everybody was like that, but there was a lot of people around in the same boat. When you're, again, in in a Canadian program, it's it's much smaller. The resources aren't there. The OR isn't there. The administrative help isn't there. And you're not like a group of six or seven full-time OMFS surgeons. It's really hard. And it's a lot of work and seeing, you know, Two, three resident clinics per week is enough to make your head explode sometimes, right? (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. There's there's only so much bronze, you know, that you can... So yeah, I I mean, I think now the schedule that I have with, you know, the couple of days uh, in my practice, it really helped me personally a lot because I feel more invigorated when I come to work. I know I'm not going to be here again tomorrow because I'm in my practice. So I've got to get a lot of stuff done today and it sort of keeps you on your toes. You're switching it up and uh, you're doing other things. And and to be honest with you, it's really nice to do things on your own and not have to like, you know, do half of it and hand it over yep. to Wendell to screw up the other half.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know?
2: it's like, I did my pilot drill, Dr. McCool, and he got to come and fix it. And then he does a second drill and you got to come and fix it and, you know.
0: we end up putting a six millimeter where a 3.3 was indicated that's right yeah
2: exactly
1: (laughs) we are just trying to get the biggest platform possible yeah (laughs) you just got to put a good spin on it
2: that's right yeah
1: but along those same lines of kind of transitioning to from full academics or part-time academics is one of the biggest fears that i guess that i feel a lot of surgeons have that why they choose not to go into academics is they feel that they're not going to make money what would you say to those surgeons
2: But I mean, look, no, not at all. No, I'm joking. Look, everyone's different. You don't go into academics from, I could tell you, you're not like, uh, you're not starving. You still have a very good lifestyle. You have a, a, a great career. There's a lot of other things that are going on in your career that, you know, you find fulfillment in. You're not doing terrible, but you you're, you don't do it for the money. You shut up and drive an Acura and uh, you go to work, <laughs> which is a nice car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Until value. your resident
1: gets one and it's then funny. you're like, I got to move up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: No, but I, I wouldn't let that, you know, if you have a true passion for academia and teaching and hospital-based practice, I, I totally wouldn't let the money sway you because it, it totally does not make sense.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the keys is you have to go in not trying to make as much money in that academic time as you would in prior, prior. You'll go crazy. You will just be sad the whole time. I look at my one day a week downtown as like a public service as a chair. They don't expect to make any money from it. I think when I supervise at the faculty, they give like $135 for a five-hour session. And parking is $150 in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you lose money each time you go down. So I think I think that's a good answer. You know, you have to do it for other reasons. For you, Nick, I mean, not only did you decide to give up a lifestyle of teeth and titanium for academics, you chose one of the most rigorous and demanding fields: head and neck oncology. So, why did you choose head and neck oncology? And you know, before maybe you talk about your inspiration, can you address one one of the biggest controversies we've ever had in the podcast, which is a hashtag. Mooresgate.
2: Gate. Uh, I will refrain from commenting on Moore's Gate for fear, no, fear of retribution. Keeping
0: it classy. <laughs> no, you no, you can't. No, I'm not gonna. <laughs> like. No, you can't. You cannot comment. You're you're the one that came up with Gate when you listen to the episode. We want
2: to we want to know your opinion. Uh, I think that Miller is a, a great guy for acknowledging uh, <laughs> the tremendous work that Dr. Hakim has done in the field of maxillofacial oncolog- oncology. In the you know it. Center. You know it's
0: bad when they start with. Well, I think he's a great guy. Uh. <laughs> great acknowledgement. <laughs> when, when, when he brought out Gate, he thought he was doing it under a burner account. No, <laughs> but the, well, why did you decide on head and neck oncology? What well, what did you like so? much about it look, because it's not easy i mean i i did it for i had zero exposure obviously before coming to mcgill uh, You have to learn from scratch and then I, I did it with you for six years and that it was by far the most even as a chief like nothing compares to the stress of the head and neck oncology case whether you're at the flap and you know one wrong flick of the knife or the bovie, and you hit the peroneal vein or artery and you're like screwed or at the neck it's like the most complex anatomy i've ever seen in my life like nothing was more stressful than those cases so why did you choose to torture yourself this way? And what inspired you to to go into head and neck oncology?
2: I mean, I guess uh, for me, I fell in love with head and neck oncology when I was a dental student. Uh, I was doing externships uh, in different programs. And I went to Michigan for uh, three or four weeks and uh, they were doing a ton of head and neck. And I was like, oh my God, I totally want to do this. For me, I love anatomy. It's probably the funnest thing I did in medical school, dental school. I loved learning about anatomy. The complexity of the head and neck anatomy was great for me. Soft tissue management, you know, all these things were really, they really sparked my interest as a dental student. But, you know, I guess my passion for maxillofacial oncology is really that I feel as an OMFS-trained oncologic and reconstructive surgeon, I feel like we have something to offer. I think we have a different spin on things. You know, I'm not saying we're better than other specialties or not, but I always felt, that, and we could see it in our program. You know, the way we do our virtual surgical planning and, and uh, the way we plan our reconstructions, and even the way we do our ablative surgery, having a command of the oral cavity, like we do, you know, uh, cutting a BSSO is a hard frigging procedure, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you dig in a tunnel and then you're taking <laughs> a big ass saw <laughs> and you're jamming it in the back of a patient's mouth, right beside their throat. And, no, you know, uh,
0: just to clarify, Oscar's a was he uses the Lindemann burr?
2: Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to hear that, but <laughs> but you know, like like our ability to do things in the oral cavity is absolutely phenomenal. And to be able to translate that into ablative surgery, I mean, I use those skills all the time where I put my retractors or I put a channel retractor and I use those for for removing cancer. So I always felt that our training gave us some different spin or an edge or whatever you want to call it in being able to treat oral cancer with the appropriate training. And uh, so for me, it's obviously one of the things uh, I love doing and my passion in in maxillofacial surgery, obviously one of them is this, and yeah, I think it's great for programs that that can do.
1: You're lucky that you're able to do this and and complete your interest, but it's not luck. You've worked very hard, so I shouldn't downplay by saying luck, but what are the barriers preventing more oral surgeons in Canada from doing full scope head and neck oncology? We have many other surgeons that are interested, but as of now, McGill is really the only institution performing this service.
2: I think, you know, what's really important is, well, that M- McGill does a ton. I mean, Dow has been doing for many years, a lot of ablative surgery and, and cancer surgery as well. I think the most important thing is that you can't dabble in head and neck surgery. Yeah.
1: You know? yeah. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know.
2: <laughs> Some people would like to, yeah, I've done a few flaps and I'd like to go in and do a flap here and there, or, or maybe do, you know, a resection here and there. And, and it goes for oral surgeons, it goes for ENTs, it goes for plastics. You can't dabble in this stuff because of the things that Wendell said, you know, just the quick wrong turn of something and, and something can go really, really wrong. So you have to dedicate yourself to it. And I think, you know, to the credit of uh, Michelle, who again, you know, it's a great friend of mine and a colleague. He came to McGill and when he started the oncology practice at McGill, he started it knowing that he's not dabbling in it. You know, he, he was working with ENTs. He was doing it on a weekly basis. He ran weekly clinics that were mostly focused on oncology and reconstructive surgery and you take the good and the bad, right? You know, you've got to see like a thousand fibromas to see one one cancer. And you've got to see a trillion Mrons to see one ORN that needs a fibula flap. And quickly those cases build up and, and you're carrying all those patients and you're carrying the dysplasias and you're carrying the CISs. And it's a big job, but you have to dedicate uh, yourself to it. So I think for those that want to get into this, you need to align yourself, first of all, with a team. And that team can be, again, different surgical specialties or whomever. And you really need to go in and show that you have something to offer, something different, and that your training is there and you're committed to to doing it. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it five days a week, but you're committed to this part of your profession.
0: Yeah, definitely can't dabble in it. Another thing we spoke about last episode was increasing r- requirements for medical licensure in uh, U.S. programs. When McGill's program was designed, one of the pillars was reducing the amount of med school required. For example, you know, we only have to do two years compared to maybe Western and Dell and minimizing the amount of time on general surgery. As someone who trained in the U.S., what did you think about this issue we talked about, about increasing medical licensure requirements in the U.S.?
2: So I think that, you know, it's... Uh... First of all, I feel that medical licensure is important. You know, we should be carrying our medical license for those of us that have finished medical school and have gone through all the appropriate steps of taking our board exams, et cetera. You know, I know in the U.S. there's a big push to recognize the at least some years, mostly the senior years and chief years of OMFS is surgical residency training. I still carry my Michigan medical license, and that was based on my, they gave me one year for OMFS training and one year for my general surgery training. So that's two years. And I believe that, you know, a system has to be developed that's similar to that here in Canada, because with all of our programs going towards, you know, most of our programs anyways, going towards a medical degree, I think it's important to recognize, you know, the work that Wendell put in to get his MD, you know, the crap you have to put up with doing all of your general surgery rotations and all these sorts of things. And we have to recognize that a year of OMFS senior or even junior surgical training shouldn't be any different than a year of plastic surgery surgical training. So why is that included as a year towards your medical licensure, but our surgical training where, you know, Wendell's spending five days a week in the hospital, seven days a week in the hospital, just like all of his other surgical colleagues isn't counted.
0: But why does that differ from Canada? Because in Canada, you would have a better idea of this. What is preventing someone like myself, graduate from Yale, did got my MD, but I can't get an actual medical license in Canada, in any province, Is that just based on what you said, is that I've only done that one year of general surgery, so they're not counting the rest of my training as doing enough medical training?
2: No, the big thing in Canada is that in the US, they require a certain number of years, depending on the state of postgraduate medical education. In Canada, medical licensure is offered for those who have completed an accredited medical residency or family medicine. And because our specialty obviously is a dental specialty, and not recognized by the Royal College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons, we cannot apply for medical licensure, and that's the biggest barrier for us right now. Okay. So that's yep. the
1: limiting
0: factor there. Okay, I see. What it is. We're not a medical specialty. Okay,
2: yeah,
1: that makes sense. It's time to do family medicine, Wendell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> my dad, my dad's a family doctor. Well, my mom saying. would, at, yeah, my mom would ask me because he, he's he got a, a good family practice going, obviously he wants to slow down. My mom would ask me once every six months of oral surgery residency, you got your MD, so do you want to do two more years and you could work part-time <laughs> in his practice? And I was just like, mom, just let it go. I know you I know you don't believe I'm a real doctor, but like mm. I'm not taking over this family <laughs> practice on the side. I'm not doing oral surgery, jaw surgery, I dabble in family medicine. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> you know what, let's just come in on Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So... The next uh, section we wanted to move on to was we love to involve our guests in either the resident reminder or journal club just to kind of get your opinion on it because you're an expert, but also you know it extends the conversation, it includes you in one of our other segments. So we wanted to definitely include you in journal club because you're someone that's published a lot, you do a lot of research yourself. But before we get into our chosen article, can you tell us why is research important and why does resident research matter? You know, some people have to do it as part of their master's program. Some people have to do it because maybe their graduation is conditional on completing a project. Why does it matter? Why is it important?
2: I mean, look, research is extraordinarily important for us to do a because it uh, helps advance our specialty and the research that residents are doing are is the research that is a lot of times advancing our our, our specialty forward i mean I know I like to knock you a lot on your self self, <laughs> self yeah promotion <laughs> and shameless plugs of CT read and mr read but these are the innovative projects that residents think of that push our our specialty forward a- and they're outstanding and and super important and if anything it teaches you how to critically think it teaches you how to assess things and it teaches you how to problem solve so for all those reasons I'm a huge proponent of residents doing research and it doesn't have to be you know benchtop research it doesn't have to be stuff that's gonna you know get a CHI a CIHR grant sorry but Anything that you can do to help promote yourself, your program, and your specialty, I think is worthwhile.
1: I do so like what in a four year program, we had to do one for a master's project. And as much as I didn't like it at the time, I do see the value in it. I see the value in research. I see how it makes you critically think of things. when you're reading an article, it's easier to praise it because you learn the skills. So I do think research in a residency is very good. Along those lines, what makes a good research project in your mind?
2: Again, I mean, I think things that interest you so that you actually put some good effort towards it. Things that are clinically translatable for me, I always appreciate the research that's clinically translatable and something that uh, you're proud to put your name behind, you know. So those are the things that you should be trying to achieve if you need to do or if you sell off to do a research project as a resident.
0: Yeah, and I, and I would echo that. I think that if you're just picking some lame topic just to like get the check mark and, and try and get through, you're going to hate. Every, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate every minute of it. You're not going to enjoy it. For me, ironically, with CT read and read there were things I wanted to do. Like in general, and it was my staff that actually said, you know, Dr. Shuason said, you should make this. You should make this into a research project. It's easier to get funding. It's easier to critically appraise your results, and you can actually make this into more of an academic project rather than just something you're going to build and hope that people will do. So I I hadn't even thought of it in that way. So I think because I was so passionate about it, it didn't make it like a job to try and just do this project. Yeah, it wasn't work. I mean, it was long hours and things like that, but you know, you're creating something that you wanted to do anyway. So I think that's, definitely a, a huge benefit. So let's let's jump into this journal, because this journal has given us a lot to, uh, this article has given us a lot to talk about. We, ne- we need to address another, you know, kind of, not controversy, I'm not going to say controversy, I don't know what Oscar, how he would call this, but we're going to talk about an article. It's going to feature a prominent Toronto surgeon named Marco Caminiti. And Nick, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you've been waiting a while to come on the show, and you're surprised you were finally invited on. And I mean, you were there when I told you I was starting this podcast. I was showing you logos. And I said, "I said, you know, or you, you said, oh, when am I going to come on? I said, oh, listen, you'll definitely come on. I want to have you on. But you got to wait your turn. I can't just have, you know, McGill, 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 McGill. You know, you got to spread it out. I was trying to play hard to get. You know, it, it, it did take a lot longer than we thought it would at first. But you were great about it. You never really, you never whined. You never complained. You never kind of messaged me. We have an issue going on with Marco Caminetti. <laughs> And the issue we're having is we mentioned his name pretty much on every podcast, usually in a good, I will say usually in a good light. And honestly, he's quite involved in both our lives right now. He's very, he controls (laughs) a lot. There's a huge conflict of interest there because he's pretty much my boss at the school. And And he's 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 one of the founding partners of my (laughs) office. (laughs) So we definitely have to watch what we say, but. We we're usually talking about him in a very nice way, but he's mentioned you know in passing you know once every few months like oh I'm not good enough to be on the podcast or maybe these guys will invite me on and just literally yesterday today um, he, or was it today it's today yeah uh, so today he, today he's talking to Oscar they're working together and he says oh what are you up to tonight And Oscar says oh I'm recording the podcast and he says oh is is there a guest on is there no guest and I was like no this is a guest episode we're having a uh, Nick McCool. And uh, he said, oh, well, didn't he submit, uh, you know, an audio before for like debate, debate club when you guys had that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, he did. We, he submitted an audio. And Marco just said, oh, it's nice, nice of him to come twice on the
1: podcast before I'm, <laughs> I'm, before
0: I'm even invited. Just,
1: just, he just threw me under the bus. He's like, it's nice that you're going to put him on twice and your program director hasn't been on once. And I was like, I'm going to go see a patient now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so Nick, do you, do you have any advice for Marco who's patiently waiting his turn, and and I, I. The more I think about it, the more I just. We keep talking about him, but never actually inviting him on the show.
2: Means he can never defend himself. That's right. So I'll tell you what I did, Marco. Is I uh, rejected the offer a couple of times, <laughs> <laughs> and finally Wendell convinced me to come on. So uh, I reverse think he, psychology. Reverse psychology. <laughs> this just totally works. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Next week, Sergio at the
1: will be like, I unsubscribed from your podcast. He's like, you guys are the worst <laughs> podcast in history. I'm starting my own.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Fritz, Fritz Kinley, who now listens every episode. By the way, he listens at two times speed now. He's upgraded from 1.5 times speed to two quick. times speed. I told him there's no way you can understand. He's like, it is kind of hard to follow.
2: I do you at 1.75. <laughs> I they,
0: do. See, Wendell, they're a lot busier than we are, right? So they got to get things done i guess so yeah listen as long as you're listening i don't care what speed it's at (laughs) but even fritz is saying oh you guys keep mentioning my name in the podcast stop talking about me i I don't know i don't know i don't own a yacht (laughs) it's not true (laughs) but let's let's jump into this article great article so it's called alloplastic temporomandibular joint replacement in patients with systemic inflammatory arthritis and connective tissue disorders so we always do our pre-screening nick as you know so we want you to pre-screen with us so first up we have Matilde Sarlabu, and she's actually an attending at Laval. She did the fellowship with Dr. Sutka, his TMJ fellowship. And Dr. Sutka is the final author uh, on this paper. And then we have Mohammed El-Rabini, who's uh, the resident. And he's currently doing a fellowship. He's currently doing a fellowship in, uh, in Tampa, creating a facial
1: fellowship. And Oscar, you know him well, because you were a resident with him. Yeah, he's honestly, he's great. And not just as a resident, as a person. Like I talk to him at least once a week right now. Yeah, so he,
0: he he's a super nice guy, and then we have, of course, Marco Caminiti. Now, pre-screening, obviously, we all love this. It's we got oral surgeons, we got a resident, we got attendings from different places in Canada, we got former fellows, we have fellowship directors. So we all know it's going to pass our pre-screening. I did I did kind of laugh at the bottom. You know, you know, they always say like, who are, who are these people and and what are their titles and stuff. And you know, people have titles. So for Marco, he's an assistant professor at U of T. So I mean, that makes sense. He's a co-director of the U of T fellowship program. That also makes sense. He's the director of the University of Toronto
1: Centre for Advanced Jaw Surgery. Oscar, I didn't, I didn't know what that was. Is that a real thing? Honestly, that's the f- half the time I don't even read this little portion, and especially when it's my staff because I know them so well. So it's like, what's the point <laughs> of me reading their credentials? That <laughs> is the first time I've ever heard that title. Yeah, me, me too. But I like so, the way it sounds, so I'm going to give him credit for it. I know. And he's it's the Centre for Advanced
0: Jaw. So the first thing I was thinking was like, man. How do I become a member you of this? To like, of you need to, you need need to be to part of You need to work your way in. So you know what? You need to invite him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, not, yeah, he's definitely not going to accept me now. Yeah. So that one I thought was funny. Then he's chief of the department at Humber River. That makes sense. And then obviously we have Dr. Suka, who's an assistant professor, co-founder. But even Dr. Suka it says co-director, University of Toronto Fellowship Program. So that makes sense. But it's also that he's the co-founder of the Sinai Health System Center. For excellence in
1: TMJ surgery. I didn't even know that existed either. That one I did have more because we had heard it when I was training. But Dr. Kamenides was new to me. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. So then a
0: conflict of interest disclosures. It does say Dr. Sika and Dr. Kamenides are occasionally, are occasional paid consultants and teachers for Zimmer Biomet. I don't think that'll be a huge issue for this because in Canada, mostly we use Zimmer Biomet. I know, Nick, you do joint replacements. You always use Zimmer Biomet and usually... You do custom. Do you do any stock, Nick, or is it mostly custom that you do? Uh,
2: I haven't done any stock actually in Canada and the US. I did a couple of stock cases, but no, never. Yeah,
0: I remember in residency we did a bunch of custom, and it was just so nice, so easy. So let's jump into this article. So, what they're saying is the diagnosis of TMJ involvement in systemic arthropathic diseases is based on the history, physical findings, radiographic study, and laboratory testing. However, the sensitivity and specificity of the test for TMJ arthritis is low. So the goal of managing TMJ arthritis is to relieve pain and improve function. And most patients, over 90% can be managed with conservative therapy. So occlusal splint, physiotherapy, medication. They also get systemic medications all the time for these patients. And sometimes arthrocentesis and arthroscopy can provide a good therapeutic aid if the upper joint space is preserved. So therefore, the question for the study was, what are the outcomes for total TMJ alloplastic replacement in patients? with systemic inflammatory arthropathies. And to do so, we elected to evaluate the changes in pain and function in patients with systemic inflammatory arthritis who underwent total joint replacement at our institution. So for me so far, I like the premise, but right away, Nick, I wanna ask you, you know, you're know, you an academic, you're reading this article, you've read the intro, you've read the purpose of the study now. We haven't gotten to anything else, but just when you read the purpose and the study design, do you think this makes sense? Do you think this is a good kind of outline and a good question to ask in the first place?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think that to those that have arthritis or systemic or arthritis of their TMJ, we treat a lot with TMJ replacement, so I think it's a good question to look at your outcomes.
1: And and I think when it comes to the outcomes, decrease in pain or, or increase in pain and increase in function or decrease in function, what else would you want to know? Like I think those are the two main outcomes that we're really worried about if you're going to be treating these patients in my opinion.
2: One of the things that struck me is I guess if you want to know what the difference is between treating somebody who just has an arthritic joint and somebody who has a systemic arthritis, is looking at sort of the long, long term of these patients. Are they getting ankylosis? Are they getting any heterotopic bone formation? Because we know those that have, you know, wear and tear arthritis aren't normally going to They're develop not going to be those. Yep. Yep. Right, so so that's one of the things that I think you know. In this article, it would be nice, but again, you don't have that many patients, and you don't have maybe that long of a follow up. Although they do mention it uh, that they didn't see any of that in this uh, cohort that they reviewed.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's a single group retrospective cohort study. Patients who had TMJ alloplastic reconstruction with a diagnosis of a systemic inflammatory arthritis or connective tissue disorder. Were included in the study, so that's the inclusion criteria. And then patients who were followed for less than three months following surgery were excluded. So we like that. We like the fact that they got rid of people that were didn't have a great long follow-up. Now, obviously, three months is very short, but you always like to see when they're trying not to just inflate their numbers and just include everyone. They do have to have some kind of exclusion criteria. And as Oscar mentioned, the two primary outcome variables were changes in range of motion and pain before and after intervention. So we like that. A lot of the TMJ articles tend to have those two things, and I like that because that's what we care about. Did they have pain? or did they decrease their pain and did they have good function? So if we jump to the results, a total of 39 patients were eligible for inclusion in the study with a total of 74 joint replacements. So I found personally for a total joint replacement study, that was a high number because it's hard enough in a Canadian institution to do a ton of joint replacements. But remember they're only including the people with systemic arthritis and not your local wear and tear. So that's a
1: small population that they're including. Like the population is
0: big and they're only studying a very small or very
2: specific percentage of people.
1: Yeah. So
0: yeah. I thought 39 patients with 74 total joints was a good sample. What did you think about the sample size, Nick?
2: Again, for a retrospective study, I think it's a, a decent sample size. Obviously, if you're doing a, a larger study that's uh, going to compare two different groups, you're going to need a bigger sample size than that.
0: So in five cases were done with TMJ concepts, one with Christensen system, and then the remaining 33 were Zimmer Biomet. So they did mention that, you know, there's not enough patients for me to compare you know, between the different types. I don't think we really cared about that. We weren't really looking to see between the types, which one was going to provide better or worse result. It's really just, you know, taking out the joint, putting hardware in there. And then results of their pair T-test showed patients to have an increase, significant improvement actually in both range of motion and pain levels. So that's good. The pain went from a baseline score of 6.8 down to 1.3. And MIO or maximal intercisal opening was shown to improve from 22 to 35. So good results there. They mentioned there were no serious late or late complications. One patient developed persistent dysesthesia in the V3 distribution, and one patient had persistent pain, which was diagnosed as systemic neuropathic pain. No patients developed permanent paralysis of any branches of the facial nerve. So that was one thing I I was interested to see, because that's one of your biggest fears when it ever comes to a total germ replacement, is obviously you can have temporary weakness, which happens to a lot of people just from stretch injury. But permanent facial paralysis is one of the scariest things. I think when it comes to doing any kind of total joint, they had some mild wound dehiscence that healed on routine wound care. They had no cases of infections that required reoperation or implant. That would have been catastrophic because we know with TMJ replacements that's one of the worst things that can happen. They did so. They had no cases of heterotopic ossification. They had two patients that received autogenous fat grafting um, and postoperative radiation due to a history of ankylosis. So that was kind of cool in presence of heterotopic bone. I wanted you ask, uh, to ask you Nick. You know, when you do a total joint replacement, will you do an autogenous fat graft on everyone? Will you reserve for certain cases? Do you do it for a discectomy? like, when will you do a fat
2: graft? When they have a history of ankylosis.
1: Yeah, so okay. you will for sure on all those patients. Yeah. Will you do the
0: low-dose radiation too or just the just the
2: fat graft? I haven't done low-dose radiation. I do a, a very good osteectomy in the area and osteoplasty and take a big chunk of abdominal fat and, and pack it in there. Okay.
0: One serious complication was one patient developed postoperative acute angioedema on post day one. They thought this was an allergic reaction to IV Ketorolac and this required an emergency trach ICU admission with ultimate resolution. So, you know, this is major surgery, major complications. That sounds pretty scary to me. And then further, she also developed herpes zoster post and a cranial nerve V1 distribution. And then I like how they say, you know, she continues to have neuropathic pain, which is being, you know, managed by medication, but The patient continues to do well from the TMJ standpoint with excellent range of motion and minimal associated pain. It reminds me of that phrase when they talk about- Well, that's what we're studying, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, other than that, how was the play? You know, it's just the president got assassinated. But other than that, how was the show? So good, good, good overall results. Uh, Luckily, no major long-term complications. You're always going to have complications with any surgery. So nice that they documented and shared that. So- if we move on to the discussion part, they did mention one hilarious line was they say, nevertheless, this study takes place at the largest TMJ center of excellence in Canada, which I thought was a nice flex, you know, kind of mentioning that. But I, I think it is true. I think they are known as the the center of excellence for TMJ reconstruction, and you know, they they do really good numbers. So, and if you're going to shameless
1: was, plug, you got to let them shameless plug too.
0: Yeah. So I thought I thought that was pretty funny. Nick, did you did you think that was funny, or did you just kind of no, read I, it and he kind Did not even on?
1: realize it?
2: Uh, And no, I, uh, for sure. I mean, they do tons of uh, TMJ, so flex away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Flex away. So one other thing they mentioned is the issue of patients with unilateral pain, whether or not it's a localized wear and tear from a trauma that's easier. But when systemic conditions, the question is always, do you do both joints or do you do one? Yeah, exactly. So they said there's scant evidence that patients with previous unilateral TMJ surgery have about a 30% chance of eventually requiring total joint replacement on the contralateral side. So the question for you, Nick, is how do you manage these patients where one side, you know, they got systemic arthritis, one side is just totally torn apart, but the other condyle seems functional, looks good on MRI, looks good on CT, they're not complaining of pain, or maybe it has early changes, but they're completely fine clinically. How do you manage the contralateral side, knowing how hard it is to get one OR approved, let alone get two?
2: I I mean, for me personally, I would leave well enough alone. I think, you know, by now, uh, the way I I sort of deal with things is a risk-benefit analysis. And uh, if you're going to have a low benefit because there's good function from the joint and there's no pain uh, and you're introducing risk because every surgery has a risk. know, your risk-benefit analysis weighs uh, away from doing the procedure. You could always come back and do the procedure at a later date. Although it's not convenient, it's two ORs, it's two general anesthesias. However, the last thing you want to do is get an infection uh, in hardware on the side that was not causing a problem or, you know, a uh, paralysis of the upper division of the facial nerve.
1: Yeah, like can you warrant the risk? And I'm gonna use the word elective on an elect like loosely, because maybe they're saying it's not gonna be an elective procedure in the future, but at that point it is an elective procedure. The other joint is functioning. So that that is hard to make that decision or justify jumping in on that side, I would say. And even from the scant evidence, according
0: to that, 70% of people are gonna be fine didn't need anything yeah. done on the other side. If so. you, if
1: you're if I'm a patient,
0: you give me those odds, I'm like leave it alone. Yeah, exactly. I mean even from a resource point of view, you don't want to burn through resources just to preemptively maybe help a problem so to conclude they said most patients with systemic arthropathies of the tmj including the study had excellent outcomes with alloplastic tmj total joint replacement with significant reduction in pain levels and improvements in range of motion so for me you know we already knew kind of that total joint replacement is a great kind of final step that we can do a final surgery we can offer and it can really help with function and pain This kind of just focused on but well, we know it helps with local wear and tear What about patients that have systemic issues? So I thought it was a nice article to review and very, very well written, very easy to review. So overall, I enjoyed the article. How about you guys? I really liked it.
2: Yep. A very good article. Great to read to understand, you know, the reasons to do TMJ replacements in these patients.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So that concludes our Journal Club. Thanks to the authors for uh, submitting to Jameis and getting some Canadian publications out there. We always like that. We're pretty biased for Journal Club. I mean, as soon as we see a Canadian, it's we almost get, always-
1: We're going to talk about it. Yeah,
0: we almost we almost always see that. The tough part is when we see a Canadian publish in Jameis, but then I've published in some other like ghetto journal. It's like, do I do we stick with Jameis and the do Canadian? We, or are we, home or 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 s- do we just- Or do we just- Yeah, yeah we're, just do we're my supporting my one. Yeah. And I, I can say there's about a 99.9% chance we're going to pick my article. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've earned it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do the shameless plug. So that concludes our journal club. Nick, before we let you go, it's been awesome having you on. We like to do recommendations on this podcast. And I wanted to clue you into one of the ones that I was planning on doing this episode. So I was going to speak about. Curb Your Enthusiasm, which has just returned for its 11th season. I think it's the greatest comedy of all time. I know you think Seinfeld is. But as a fellow watcher of Curb, I mean, we already mentioned how I used to download it illegally and put on a USB for you every week. Would you endorse this show as well to the audience? Like, would it be on your recommendation list for people? It's pretty,
2: <laughs> pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty good. good. Uh, I love <laughs> Curb Your Enthusiasm. What an, and you turned me on to that show. Honestly, I didn't even know about it until you until you knew, told me because I knew you
0: were a big Seinfeld guy. Oh, and if you like if you like Seinfeld, you're gonna like Curb because he was the writer for the first seven seasons. And it's just hilarious. And it's hilarious in the same way Seinfeld is.
2: Yeah. It's a show about nothing, but it's Mm -hmm. freaking hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Super good. All
0: right. So we got, we got my endorsement.
1: We have Nick's endorsement. Oscar, have you ever watched Curb? No, I actually, well, and when I say I haven't, I'm not like a loyal watcher, but I've watched it on and off and it is, it is, it does remind me of Seinfeld and it's so easy to watch even in the background because you don't really have to be paying attention. And then you tune in, you're like, oh, this is still funny because there's, it's about (laughs) nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, very enjoyable.
0: And then Seinfeld for everyone that hasn't seen Seinfeld, it's actually on Netflix right. Yeah, now I've been Canada watching it like crazy lately. Time. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people are binging on Netflix. It's like the best time ever to get into Seinfeld because you can watch it all on Netflix easily, where previously they said it was never going to be available on these streaming platforms. So definitely check out. I w- I'd probably say watch Seinfeld first and then watch Curb because. Some of the Curb episodes like do kind of bring in the Seinfeld cast and relate to Seinfeld. I watched Curb first and then I found Seinfeld a bit hard to watch because I found Curb so much better. But I think it's because I watched it in the wrong order. For sure. And then Nick, I know that you're adamant that, that Seinfeld is better than
2: Friends. Oh, 100%. 110%. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was an easy one for him. Yeah. He always hated on Friends and he loved the Seinfeld. Nick, are there any shout outs you want to give?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, look, thanks a lot for having me on the show, first of all. So shout outs to you guys. You guys are doing a great job. Even though I listened to you at 1.75 <laughs> times, it, it's only because there's uh, my commute to work is o- only so long, but um, great job with the show and promoting our specialty. A shout out to all my former residents, current residents at McGill. You guys are... You know the uh, heartbeat of our program, and uh, we're really proud of uh, what we're doing here. And it's really uh, thanks to all of our graduates and residents. Uh, obviously, all of our staff. Uh, we mentioned Dr. Chesson she's doing a great job with being the director of the program there and taking care of our residents on a daily basis. I wrote on my hand here to send a shout out to our Moore's Godfather. So I don't. I'm not. I'm not recording another one of these in a month. So. Yeah. <laughs> so uh michelle hakim uh, obviously we spoke about him all of our staff uh, tr- we have tremendous tremendous staff at, at mcgill uh, and the shout out to all of them and uh, yeah my my uh, family who puts up with me and uh, lets me sit here and talk to you guys uh, until 9:30 uh, at-, at night instead of putting the kids to sleep
1: after a long day of work yeah that's a big
2: shout out right there yeah for sure guys so uh, thank you very 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 much
1: Awesome,
0: it was great having you. Thanks for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oscar, before jumping into our last segment recommendations, I had sent you a couple more, not articles, but little things from Jameis that we wanted to talk about. The first thing we want to talk about is, you know, there's letters to the editor. I like that you're that you're picking these. You know what? I enjoy reading them. Yeah, I feel like it's important not only to just go over the articles. Sometimes there's cool things in this letters to the editor. And the simply put section that we're going to get to afterwards. But for letters to the editor, I guess this you know article by Anthony Pogrel uh, in San Francisco a lot of controversy. You know it was entitled Nerve Gap Reconstruction with Mandibular Ablative Oncologic Surgery. So the first person that wrote in is Roger Meyer from Greensboro, Georgia, and he said a review of Pogrel's provides long term follow up of 30 patients who had a mandibular reconstruction after tumor ablation surgery. In which the inferior alveolar nerve was not reconstructed, so they just did the resection, did a flap, but they didn't do anything with the nerve. And 29 of these 30 patients uh, had some spontaneous return of sensation, and 21 of 30, 70 percent achieved useful sensory function. So huge. I honestly, huge
1: I was like, I was like, wow. When I, I was read surprised.
0: that, I was really surprised. And then he argues that. Immediate reconstruction of the inferior alveolar nerve and adding that to the reconstruction plan following ablative surgery has shown good outcomes in return of sensation. And usually patients get this within a few months after reconstru- reconstructive surgery compared to Pogrel series who waited four to five or more years. You know, one patient one waited 18, 18. 18 years. I, I don't know about that. Is that not that, that patient possible?
1: convinced himself he was feeling
0: something. They convinced himself, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no way after 18 years, all of a sudden you started feeling something. And in the past, one of the main risks of harvesting you know, a nerve graft was you had to go autogenous, so the sural nerve, and you could get a chronic donor site neuropathic pain. So he said, while his findings are interesting, when counseling patients preoperatively about their surgical options for reconstruction or ablative tumor surgery of the mandible, this information must be balanced by this discussion of current results with modern surgical techniques and materials. And I guess what he's trying to say is, listen, you you published a study that 29 out of 30 people had sensory you know, return, but people shouldn't read that and just say, okay, oh, yeah, we're fine. You don't know, don't reconstruct the nerve, because we have better options. We have oxygen, we have you know allographs that we can use, and it's much, much better for the patient. Is that is that how
1: you interpret it? I, I didn't like I, I didn't I wouldn't say it was confrontational, but I was I, I did feel that he was saying, Okay, this article might be swaying things in one direction, which he didn't really agree with. And to be honest with you, I liked his point where it's like, yeah, you have to give patients, I think, all the information. If I'm a patient and you tell me there are these new techniques and we may be able to get you some nerve functioning, some decent nerve functioning within six months or a year, and the other person didn't tell me that and told me that I would get some functioning, but kind of left out that it can be anywhere from four to 18 years, I'd be a little bit annoyed at that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's tough. it's tough for us in Canada because we don't have access to oxygen, it's too expensive. Hopefully one day, you know, generic version or the price will come down and I'm sure people will incorporate it. If you're a microvascular surgeon, doing the nerve graft is easier. Than doing the micrograph, but I thought it, I you know kept it professional. But he kind of you know said he didn't really agree with the article. But then someone else separately, John Zaniga, who who was a big person in all the nerve graph studies, like it's always Meloro and Zaniga. Like if you look at every single one, he also independently wrote in and said to the editor, and he said a lot of the similar things that Roger said. So I'm not going to repeat it. But some of the highlighted lines were. However, the outcome of Pogro's article and conclusion should also be subjected to critical analysis so that our profession and the care of our patients can be advanced. So I'm like, okay, I to do a little bit of a critical appraisal. Although the author warns that the results must be interpreted with caution, the claim was made that the study should serve as a base to assess if the immediate inferior alveolar nerve repair improves outcomes when compared to those with no repair. So I thought this was hilarious because this is a total example of like, having your cake and eating it too you can't say oh like interpret my results with caution but by the way you don't need to do this anymore this you know nerve graft repair because my study clearly shows that that's not necessary and then he concludes with however this article did not provide evidence that mandibular resection without immediate inferior alve- alveolar nerve reconstruction is equivalent or superior to resection with IN reconstruction rather it is just an option for patients that's yeah that's kind
1: of what you were saying yeah that, that that's a, like You can't make it the only option, but you can't say that it technically is an option as long as your patient is informed of everything that that could be done. Yeah. And now they do mention conflict of interest disclosure. Dr. Zuniga is a consultant for Oxygen. I do
0: find, unfortunately, almost all the people that publish on nerve grafting, they always use Oxygen because it is the main one. There's no problem with that. But they're always paid consultants. So you never know if that conflict is there. I don't think it's there. I think they're just passionate about the product. So they want to use as much as possible. That's how they get funding. And they want to show people you should be doing this. But the problem is you need someone like totally yeah, unaffiliated yeah. with Ac- uh, oxygen to do like a, a control group and, and, and a
1: regular uh, grafting group and compare the results, I think. And, and maybe I'm just being naive, but I want to hope and I want to believe that, you know what, they're just using this product because they think it's the best product. And they happen to also be funded by it, but I don't think that's really making their decision. Exactly. So
0: the one of the best thing about letters to the editor is you can reply. <laughs> And this is the ult- This is the most mic drop reply I've ever seen. And I loved it. So it says, reply to the letters of editor of his article by Anthony Pogrel. And I will quote, dear sirs, please do not shoot the messenger. I am not trying to make any recommendations or draw any conclusions. Just stating what I found on 30 patients. You are welcome to ignore the results or use them as a reference.
1: I liked it. I liked it. But I will say he downplays his article there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like he took a but, step but, back. But it's. I think it's a perfect response though. But it is the best response of oh, all time. Awesome for sure. Like how do you how do you argue back with that? He said you can you can re- disregard it or you can use it. Yeah. It's up like, to you. Yeah. And if you argue him now, you just look like an idiot because he's like he's telling you you can ignore me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, I, I loved it. Just a little bit a little bit of drama and
0: and the James, But I do like how people like will respond to articles that they don't agree with. And you can have a back and forth conversation. That's really nice. The last thing we want to talk about was, you know, we discovered this little thing called Simply Put, Jameis Information for Patients. And I brought it up last time. It was on, you know, TMJ. these are so useful. And I, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't know how you were going to react, but we both loved it. And I love this one too. It's on trigeminal neuralgia. And once again, it's, it's done by one of the editors. So we can see it was received August 3rd and accepted August 3rd. <laughs> it's a pretty quick review. But, but I don't even mind because Ellie or Eli Fernani, doing a great job
1: yeah yeah and this is and something I think, that you're gonna like the patients are gonna ask and it's like a or they're, they're gonna look up and if they look this up it's got all the information they need exactly so
0: we didn't do a resident reminder for this episode because you know we have the guest on and and you know we want to keep the episode reasonable but i think this would serve as a resident reminder that people should go find this <laughs> and read it? Called? yeah called trigeminal neuralgia i mean we're gonna put in the show notes so you can just click and read the article and it's perfect. It explains trigeminal neuralgia, and it's an easy way to explain it to your patients. And in literature, you can—I love that it's literature we can give them, and, and they'll say, "Like this is an article in our top journal, and look, they're saying what I'm
1: telling." Yeah. you. Yeah, and but it's not overwhelming either. Like it's no, a page, it's like two pages, it's in, and it's on, not even really two pages because one page is like a diagram, diagram, right? like yeah, of a yeah. face. So it's yeah. really like a page and a half, and it gives them all the information they'll ever need about it. Yeah, I love this simply put.
0: I'm if if they keep coming with them, I'm going to keep including them on the show because I think they're great, and we both love them. So that concludes the second half kind of our journal club. We just want to talk about those two little segments there. Finally, let's move into our last segment, which is the recommendations. Oscar, so I already discussed one of my recommendations for this episode with Nick McCool, which was Curb Enthusiasm. Which I feel like I should invest more time in. Cause... Well, no, you're watching Seinfeld, so keep watching Seinfeld okay. first. Okay, okay, I'll do that. Finish Seinfeld first, then you're going to watch Curb, and you're going to love it, because you're going to see Larry David is me. Like we're the same person. Okay. We're the same grumpy vibe with the same pet peeves. And you're probably going to be the same. You're going to share so much. I'm going to reach out to me like, Hey, do
1: you want to do a podcast or what are we doing here?
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dude, if we could get Larry David on an episode of the show, it would make my life. Yeah. We just retire. We're yeah, not I, getting we were any better. Not, nothing's going to yeah, get yeah. you with that. So the other things I wanted to talk about quickly for my recommendations. So I saw the movie Dune. I saw oh. the leaders IMAX.
1: So I purposely, actually, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. It seems like you go to the movies quite a bit. This is awesome because Lex loves going to the movies and I'm just like, oh, I don't want to go. Now that I know you guys go all the time, I'm just going to be like, guys, we're coming. It's going to be a double date. Dude, come with or, or just tell Lexi to come with us. You, yeah. She can leave you, you yeah. at home. Yeah, Leave the grumpy guy at home.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, growing up, I went to the movie theaters, but then I didn't go for a long, long time. I would just wait for it to come out and or download it or whatever. But my brother has really, you know, used it as a way to meet our cousins, meet up with the family. And some movies are just better in the theaters. You know, they're going to be better There's no so question. I like seeing action movies some yeah. of the marvel movies some of them are better in theaters so dune is obviously one of those movies that was built for cinema but i told my brother he wanted to go opening night i said listen i want to read the book because it's considered one of the best sci-fi books of oh, all time okay so i read the book first and then i went to the movie so i enjoyed the movie because i read the book i personally wouldn't recommend the movie for someone that hadn't read the book oh, well, because that's i you know. don't think you'll be able to follow it like I it's, think it's too really out there? Conf- i think it's too confusing oh for me, having read the book, I loved it because it was like a visualization of everything that I had already read. And I thought it was really well done. And, and that, man, the graphics and the visualization was just phenomenal. Okay. That's good to know. But I do think if you haven't read the book, you won't really understand. You might it. be and lost. Sec- you might be lost. And the second thing they did that was really annoying is they did that whole like part one, part two. So this movie is only part one. It's only the first half of the book. So I find that that's kind of annoying. So I'm I'm not going to recommend it uh, to the listeners unless you read the book. Then I but would if you have, it. you would say, yes, go watch it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, I trashed No Time to Die last time. Uh, I, I still think it's one of the worst Bond movies I've ever seen. That's funny, though. I've heard a lot of people say decently good things about it. No, it's terrible. It's mm. terrible. Anyone that told you that doesn't know anything about movies. <laughs> okay. Have right. you have you watched it yet? No, I haven't watched it. Yeah, wa- watch it. Watch and tell me what you think. I-, I guarantee it. Watch next time. Next time, I'm like, it's my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stop talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> one thing that was good is it did inspire me to go back and watch Casino Royale because that's the last good Bond movie that ever came out. And I will say, it is so good. You're like Casino Royale. It's still that. It's still that good. I rewatched it, and Bianca and I were watching it, and we both watched. Remember, no time to Die, together, and I'm just like, why couldn't they do something, anything like and this? Like, did this Bianca feel so the same good. way? Yeah, exactly okay. the same way.
1: Okay.
0: I told you, everyone i went, with, Bianca, my dad, my dad, my brother, my cousin, every single one of us was watching this movie, and everyone had the same reaction, which is this is terrible. So, okay. and, and a, all of us love Casino Royale. You got a lot of people going to this movie. So, who, where's Lennox at this point? Babysitting. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> the parents are babysitting. Okay, but your dad was there. Yeah, so my mom was babysitting. She, did, <laughs> got, she didn't get to you come. You guys are
1: ruthless, eh? <laughs> yeah, we were, we were ruthless.
0: My dad was like, no, I'll stay behind. Yeah. I don't want to leave her alone. I said, listen, dad, you love James you're Bond. You're like, dad, I got to never ticket. go out. Yeah, I was like, you're coming. You got to come with us. <laughs> That's awesome. So that was that. And then I wanted to check in with you, Oscar, because I said last episode, I, I'm done with you ignoring my book recommendation. Other people are reading the book. I love the book. You need to read the book. And I ordered you. It. I ordered you the book. Yep. It arrived in the mail.
1: So the, so have you started reading the book? So it's funny you say that. So I told you before, I'm never going to read a book, but I made it like after I got off the, off the, like we started recording and told Lex, I'm like, oh, when I going to get a book and I'm not going to make an effort to read it because he says it's amazing. And I do want to make an effort to read it. So go to my door. And it's like an Amazon package. And I'm like, okay, I never order anything. And Lex orders a ton of stuff. She's always ordering. I <laughs> feel like I have a subscription to everything with Lexi. And then, so then she goes and opens the package and she's like, oh, it's for you. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I don't know what it is. I open it. And it's like, oh, it's a book. And so it's the book window. And so I'm like, perfect. I'm going to read it. Or like, I'm going to get ready to read it. Moving forward. I haven't read it yet, but this is the funny part of the story. I go to work that day because it came on a work day. I go to work and Lex sends me a text. She's like, because I didn't really end up telling her that you were, that's the book you had got me. She's like, are you trying to tell me something? And I'm like, what do you mean? And again, I haven't read the book yet. So I'm not really sure what it's about, but it sounds like if you read the back cover or if you read a bit about it, it's almost like talking about divorce. And I'm like, this is the (laughs) shortest marriage. She she was like, are you trying to tell me something? And I'm like, no, no, no. Wendell got the book. I got to read it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And Um, it's
0: called sometimes I
1: lie. Yeah, exactly. So it was so funny. And she's actually started reading it. And this is my biggest fear: is that she's
0: going to read it first. Yeah, you're never going to touch this book. And at least she got to read it. I know she's going to love it too. But I bought this book for you. I spent my hard-earned cash you for you to and, read this book. And this, this is book. like,
1: and this is like new. Just graduated as a fellow, so like, these is hard-earned money. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, we at, we at, when she's she's finishing, she's almost probably finishing reading it. And then I said, I'm going to start reading it. Also, because she said it's really good too. Yeah, so so I'm excited about that. But it, it was so funny. I was like, wow, Wendell almost made my marriage the shortest marriage ever. <laughs>
0: As long as you're coming to reading eventually, it's all good with me. How about you? What are your recommendations?
1: Really, realistically, I haven't been watching that that much TV lately, which is surprising because I usually watch a ton. But I did watch a movie or a documentary recently that I really, really enjoyed. And it's called The Alpinist. And so, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if I watched it on Netflix or on Crave, one of the two, or maybe Amazon Prime, whatever it was. But it's actually about a Canadian free climber, Marc-Andre Leclerc. And I found it really, really interesting. I cannot say too much more about it because if I do, I'm gonna ruin it. I think it's a good, a really good watch. I think it's crazy to see how these how these people's brain works. Like I can I don't understand the risks they take. I don't understand how they don't take its risk. Yeah, because free climbing is like rock climbing without a harness. Yeah. And and the level that this guy's doing it at is on a different level. Even other free climbers are like, the stuff this guy does doesn't make sense. Like it just doesn't make sense. And so, and he's Canadian. So it, it was even a little bit cooler to watch, but I would definitely recommend you watch it. Awesome. Solid recommendation
0: from you. I love documentaries. So definitely, definitely we'll add that to the list. That's all for recommendations. We hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you want to reach out to us with some feedback, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. Thank you so much to our loyal listeners for continuing to support the podcast. And Oscar, always great catching up with you. And we'll see you guys next time. I'll talk to you guys later.